It's another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for joining us. Ron, we're going to talk about first movers today. And everybody would say, well, what, are we going to haul pianos into a truck? No, no, nothing like that. We're talking about, I guess, new op- new offerings. Is that what it is? Well, a first mover is usually uh, a company or an individual that has an idea, service, or product that comes out way ahead of the competition. So they've got a head start on everybody else. And so investors look at that as because you've arrived first, you have what's called a first mover advantage. Okay. So can you give us some examples here? I, I know what you're going to bring up here. Ballard Power. Well, you know, there sometimes being a first mover can be a real game changer. And there's companies that have been first movers and they've gone on to dominate the market, but usually they don't. And so today we want to discuss six misconceptions that investors uh, need clarity on before they invest in a company that's first on the scene with a new idea. And Ballard Power, as you say, is a great example of one of those misconceptions. And that misconception is that predictions happen on schedule. Now, Ballard Power went public in 1979, and you'll probably think if you go way back in your memory bank, you remember these guys, they develop hydrogen fuel cells, and they were considered to be the leader. And that is literally, well, 41 years ago. They went public in 1995. And soon after that, everybody was saying that hydrogen fuel cells are going to be used in buses and trucks, and it's going to happen right now. Stock went to 100 bucks in 2000. Today, the stock's trading at $20. And guess what? We're just starting to get to the point now, uh, 40 years later, where hydrogen fuel cells look like over the next five years, they're going to see some significant um, growth opportunity. Yes, growth opportunity, and many institutions are signing on that they want to have these kind of vehicles. And for long-distance travel, they say that fuel cells are much better than battery-operated, you know, know, electric. Electric, yeah. You know, so uh, we'll see how this turns out. But, you know, 40 years later, we're finally arriving on the doorstep where it looks like the hype that happened three decades ago and more is finally beginning to happen. The other misconception that people have, and we've seen this play out so many times in the past, that a unique opportunity is a profitable one. Well, not always. Do you remember Web Vanguard? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> they launched in June 1999, and they had a great idea. They were going to allow customers to order their groceries online and have them delivered to their homes. What a concept. <laughs> what a concept. And way back then, uh, they went big early because everybody goes, what a great idea. And shortly thereafter, they blew up and took investors' money with them. Well, with the pandemic today, home delivery is starting to be taken for granted. But it took 20 years to get the technology, to get the infrastructure, and get the experience in place to make this profitable. So Webvan was worth billions of dollars, and then it evaporated six months later. So you want to be very careful if you think that an idea is automatically going to be a profitable one, because history tells us that's often not the case. Okay, let's turn our eye to technology. Uh, There's one there that uh, being first gives you an edge in development. That's not necessarily always the truth either. 
Did you ever have a Palm Pilot, Gord? I did not have a Palm Pilot. I, I adopted a BlackBerry shortly thereafter, I think. And the first movers were people that bought these Palm Pilots, and of course, they were the first kid on the block. Everybody thought, boy, isn't this technology cool to have a phone that also acts like a digital assistant that could store numbers? Well, shortly after, like you say, it disappeared because other companies, they just innovated faster and better. So, you know, Palm Pilot was a good idea at the time, but they were just not able to evolve and compound their good ideas. And they got, they literally, other companies came along and held their head underwater until the bubbles quit coming up. All right, let's talk about somebody that comes up with an idea. Call it an invention, if you like, if you want to go that far. And they think, well, look at what I've come up with. Now I'm going to get this company going and I'm going to lead the way. That's often not how it works, too. Often inventors, they tend to be out of the mainstream, and they don't make great managers. They can't lead teams. I was on the board of a company that produced rare types of genetic seed, and the inventor was the CEO, and he was the major shareholder, so you couldn't override his decisions. And he went from one disastrous decision to another until he bankrupted the company. And so you, I learned back then that inventing something and managing the entity you come, that comes out of it are two very, very different skills. I think, again, I mentioned Warren Buffett here. It, one of his philosophies, Ron, is when he buys a company, he likes to leave the people who run it in place, right? Yeah, and that comes with the assumption that they've got great management in place. And, you know, if uh, you go back and look at a lot of his musings and writings over the years, he tends to stay away from companies where he doesn't believe they have strong management because he he thinks that if he has to parachute in there and teach these guys what to do, then it's not worth his time and his money. He wants people that are far better at managing an entity than he is so he can sit back and watch the money roll in it, as he says. Okay, it's easy to turn an idea into a business. Not necessarily so. Yeah, early stage investing is fraught with risk across all industries. doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in technology or you're starting up a food stand. Startup failure rates seem to be close to the same. Over one year, 10% of startups fail, and more would fail in the first year, but usually they have enough money to get them through the first year. Where you really start seeing them fail is in years two and three, and by the time they, uh, they get a decade or more, 90% of them are gone. All right, so competition, that's the other thing you have to worry about. You say, well, nobody's going to compete with this. Oh, you look at BlackBerry, which is a classic <laughs> yeah. example of a company getting eaten alive by the competition. Well, when they first came out, I mean, I had a BlackBerry. I think I had three successive of BlackBerrys because they had the best encryption. I liked the QWERTY keyboard. I thought it was a lot easier to use than these uh, sensitive ones on the glass where you've got you've to touch, touch the screen. And the stock's all-time high was $147.55 in 2008. Today, they're basically out of making phones. They've got someone they contracted in, in Asia to build them, and uh, they've subcontracted out their name. But that's about all they have to do with that. And the stock is now down over 90%. Eventually, Apple, Samsung, and a number of others just ate Blackberry's lunch. Yeah, as far as their, their devices were concerned, I think they're still pretty big in encryption. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't read anything on them for a while now, but uh, 
A very interesting Canadian story, that one. So now here we've talked about some of the misconceptions that people have. So what do we do that is proper in this regard, Ron? Well, two things. Number one, it's far less risky to wait and see if the second movers are able to find a profitable niche for the technology. Now, way back when, when Amazon was starting, there was another company called Books.com. Well, was Amazon going to be the one? Was Books.com going to be the one? Or was there going to be someone else that was going to come in and take this sector over? Well, if you made your bet on Books.com, well, that didn't work out too good. Amazon figured it out. And the only way you would have known that, by just sit back, wait to see which one proves to have uh, more drive, better systems, better management, better acceptance by the public. And that only comes from waiting. And number two, buy the companies that make the picks and shovels of the industry. For example, do, uh, way back when, I was taking a look at all the cell phone makers that were popping up. Did I know which one was going to win? Well, no because I just wasn't smart enough and have savvy enough, and frankly, nobody else was either. But because I had a hard time picking the winners, I bought Corning. Why? Because Corning made the scratch-proof glass that they were all using. So I didn't have to pick a, a winner in the cell phone industry, because if the cell phone industry was going to be a success, and I thought it was, they were all going to use scratch-proof glass. At the time, Corning's Gorilla Glass was the only game in town. So if the industry was moving ahead, Corning was too, and my bet was the industry was going to work. I just didn't know who the winners uh, of the individual companies were going to be. And I guess you could think about some of the technology inside a cell phone as an example. Maybe you played a chip maker or something, right? I yeah. mean, there's lots of ways to go about this without getting in big on the object itself. Yeah, and today the story is uh, virtually identical, Gord. You can, uh, everybody's looking for uh, which companies are going to have the vaccines which eventually work. Well, uh, there's so many companies that, uh, that do testing that will take the vaccine and manufacture it. Um, there's companies that provide vials and all kinds of equipment that you, you need in the testing for uh, the vaccines. And because... Their equipment is being used by every major pharmaceutical company to develop their product. That's a lower-risk way of being of playing that sector. I said a thought pop into my head around this, Ron. Years ago, my wife and I were in Australia. I know you've been there. Did you do the Sydney Harbour cruise by any chance? You must have. I even walked to the top of the bridge. Yeah, well, you know, when we were doing the cruise, there was one particular house that was pointed out to us by the guy who was driving the boat, and he was telling these little stories. So that place up there, and this, this place was enormous. It was like right out of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And he told us it was an Australian doctor. He was the guy who invented the disposable syringe. And he got, you know, a half a cent for every one that was sold worldwide. Think about all the, the syringes that are going to be used to vaccinate people. Somebody's getting rich at the other end. <laughs> exactly. And that's a product that has to be used by, by everybody, no matter what the event. You know, so instead of buying the stuff that goes in the syringe, you buy the product that delivers uh the stuff inside, yeah. Yeah, the stuff inside, which turned out to be uh, a smart move. All right, I have another question here that we want to field. Uh, this one, I, I have not heard about this, but that's why we have you around here. You're the financial coach, so we seek your expertise. This comes to us from Leslie. 
I came across a video on YouTube that provides a process to transfer your RSP funds to your cash account or TFSA before you retire by taking a mortgage from yourself on your paid-off house. It was presented by a company. I'm not going to mention them. I'm wondering if you've heard of this. Uh, do you know anything about this, Ron? Yeah, essentially, this is a program or strategy that's been around for years. It gets uh, called different things, but you're taking a mortgage out on your house. Generally, then, the company's getting you to buy an insurance policy or they're getting to you to buy some mutual funds. And what happens is that because you've borrowed to invest, the interest is tax deductible. So let's say you create $30,000 worth of deductible interest every year. Then you go and you match that by making a withdrawal out of your RSP. So if you take 30000 out of your RSP and you've got 30000 worth of, of interest, one washes against the other. But here again, you've created $30,000 worth of debt. Number two, you're expecting those funds to go up faster than or increasing in value faster than the loan is adding up and usually I find after a long move in the market, when people have forgotten that markets go down too, that's when you start seeing these strategies. Um, I would not recommend doing it. In fact, I would highly recommend running as far away as you can because I think that is a very high-risk strategy. And the other thing is too, and maybe it's me being ignorant here, but when you withdraw from your RSP, you get a tax hit right off the top. They keep 30% anyway, right? Yeah, so I mean, you get to claim that back because uh, yeah, yeah. you got the deduction on one side, but to create the deduction, you've got to create a loss. Exactly. So you're 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 creating a loss, and your only hope, hope is that you're going to get a bigger increase in your mutual funds or the investment that you put your money into that will that will offset that loss. Otherwise, just creating a loss to pull money out tax free. Uh, frankly, you've done nothing pull 30 grand out and it's cost you 30 grand. I mean, you're not really ahead. So uh, there, there's other ways to, to deal with tax and other strategies, and this is just not one of the better ones. Okay, there was one other little addendum to that question from Leslie. Do you know what's happening with NVU.UN? It has stopped trading because of the takeover. Well, that's uh, Northview Properties, and frankly, if by the, by the end of November, you should have got your money. Yeah, in the in the account, and obviously we're we're past that time frame. So, if you haven't seen the money show up in your account, uh, the next thing you want to do is get a hold of the investment firm that holds um, your securities, and just make a query with them. You know, tell them you had 500 shares of it and it disappeared two months ago, and you're wondering where the cash went because sometimes uh, things can get screwed up because when you've got all this money moving around. Occasionally, it can be put somewhere where it shouldn't, and so it's just prudent for you that if it's been a while and you haven't seen the cash show up, uh, to give someone a call at the institution you deal with. There you go. Some advice from the financial coach, Ron Hebert, dispensed here. And you can also check us out. Letsmakemoney.ca is our website, or visit cfcw.com. If you have a question, you can get to us through either of those portals. And, uh, Ron, I guess this is where we say we're going to take a bit of a breather for the festive season. And we come back in, in early January, correct? 
I believe we're back in early January. We'll be back after New Year's the following weekend. So uh, we want to wish all of you a very, very wonderful 2000. And I know it's probably been a tough year for many of you. And let's just all hope that 2021 is uh, is a better year than that. Yeah, this one, uh, I'm I'm kind of anxious to see it in the rearview mirror myself, my friend. <laughs> all the best of the holiday season to everybody. Thanks for joining us on Making Money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. We'll talk to you early in the new year. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.